This is Isabel. We recorded this segment over the summer, so a few of the details are a little bit out of date, but it was very fun and the content remains ever relevant, so enjoy. Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. Hey everyone, you're now tuning into the Top Rank Podcast. This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And we're your hosts and also editors at Top Rank Magazine. For any new listeners, our podcast is an offshoot of Top Rank Magazine, a publication based in Brooklyn that profiles women of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging the world around them. We think of our podcast as a process-oriented research platform grounded in conversation. And working in collaboration with our guests and listeners, we hope to create a flexible knowledge production outlet that is exploratory rather than prescriptive or conclusive. On today's episode, we want to talk about um, what it means to treat art as labor. Both Isabel and I either work or are kind of adjacently involved in the art world in some way. Um, many of our family and friends and acquaintances are involved in this in this um, scene, this world. <laughs> so uh, this topic is really important to us, and I think it goes without saying, um, and I think we'd actually be pretty hard-pressed to find, a person who could deny the immense social, cultural, and political significance of creative production in realizing our full potential as human beings, essentially. Um, and fostering both inventive and nurturing communities. Creative labor is what we're calling this most broadly, um, is of course a critical part of our social ecosystem. But what's very often the case, uh, and perhaps uh, most of all in the United States in particular, is that artists are unable to make a living wage off of their physical or intellectual labor or its products. Um, And I guess within artists, we're also talking about creative workers more generally. So dialogues within academia regarding the new value systems for work from a post-Fortis perspective and in the wake of the digital age have been going on since the 90s. Maurizio Lazzarato's famed 1997 essay titled Immaterial Labor sought to identify the informational and cultural content of commodities, a conversation not at all irrelevant to art objects, which likewise often circulate within the market as products. This is not to say that much of an artist and indeed of a curator's work is not still physical, but the phrase immaterial labor accounts for those activities not traditionally recognized as work. The processes, as Lazzarato says, of defining and fixing cultural and artistic standards, fashion, taste, consumer norms, and public opinion. Subjectivity itself is now commodified and profitable. Our current administration has threatened to cut funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, and actually the president's initial 2018 budget proposed the elimination of the NEA and a $29 million allotment to shut down the agency in a, quote, orderly fashion. Thankfully, this has not been acted upon, and it actually has so far been ignored by Congress, who earlier this month set aside $445 million for public and arts programming. And even in our home base of New York City, Mayor de Blasio's office just released the first ever cultural plan, a strategic document that over the next decade aims to make New York City a more inclusive and affordable place for artists to live and work. However, the idealized trope of the, quote, starving artist still pervades popular culture notions about the sacrosanct status and correspondingly the fiscal value of artistic labor itself. It's an, a romanticized image, in a way, of this, you know, penniless person who's removed from the world and especially from the market economy is the very wellspring of their genius. Like, it's what makes them great, this kind of isolation from the marketplace. Um, and it, this kind of mythology continues to have vital material implications for people who desire to make a living off their artistic production or as workers within the arts. Um, in a culture of, you know, unpaid internships, having to pay your dues often manifested in free work like internships in exchange for prestige or exposure, 
Carving out a career in the creative industries is immensely precarious, and honestly, this reality applies not only to artists, but to curators as well. In their roles as arbiters of value, both intellectually and indirectly financial, in the art world and in society at large, curators are cultural mediators whose worldview, aesthetic tastes, and sensibilities render them as gatekeepers to specific strains of access and and even elitism. The process of selection itself, while necessary and unavoidable, determines exposure, pay, and profit, though this correlation is sometimes not acknowledged in spheres of the art world too couth to concede their ties to the market. Selection also produces the delicate and often immeasurable valences of cachet itself. So today we would like to welcome curator and arts worker Ali Rosa Salas here to talk to us about her experiences with art and labor and working in the creative industry. Ali is Marcel's twin sister. Full disclosure. That's fine. (laughs) Their mother is a professional flamenco dancer and Ali spent her formative years at Faisal's Dance Studio with Marcel watching her mother's rehearsals. She began her own pre-professional dance training at the Alvin Ailey School and continued at Barnard College where she specialized in gender and sexuality, dance, and race and ethnic studies. Hey, get that education, She got a degree, kind of, yeah. Yeah, you did. You did that. Cool. So, Allie, you've done some really cool stuff. We're just going to kind of go down Aww. the list. Oh, Lordy. Here um, we go. In your professional uh, life as a curator. So, Allie has curated and produced performances for some really great arts institutions in New York um, for dance based projects, Food for Thought series. Afropunk After Dark, The Current Sessions, Mokata Soul of Brooklyn Festival, among other things that I've seen you do (laughs) throughout life. She's also worked on visual art exhibitions both independently and during her time working at Mokata, which is um, the Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts in Brooklyn. Can you tell us about what what you're doing up to now professionally? Like, what's your... No, up to now, this well, well, Friday today. This is actually marking the week of my new big girl jam. Yay! <clears throat> Thank you. I'm at I'm at Abrams Art Center in LES, and I'm the director of performance programs. So it's I'm very very honored and excited to be starting this new chapter. And um, yeah, no, literally today has been my the end of my first week. So. What is your what does your job entail at Abrams? What does my job entail? So I'm I'm working on uh, producing curating uh, interdisciplinary performance programs. So that's dance, theater, music. Um, Abrams also has an engagement uh, division. So uh, classes. So we sort of work in cross disciplinary collaborations and. Um, also a robust visual arts program and artist in residence program. So I kind of just have my fingers, hand, well, my hands and my feet and my head in <laughs> many different pots, but all, all performance related. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. Well, we want to hear your journey about exactly how you got there. But I guess we will start with a slightly more general question just to get this conversation on its way, which is, what is the labor of a curator? Oh, what is the labor of a curator? Well, you know, the Latin root, is that etymology? (laughs) Is etymology, Marcel, the the, the root of a word? Okay, I always get that ontology. Anyway, (laughs) breaking down. Um, So, so, well, it's Latin root, and curators love to say this, and I do too, so I'm going to say it. The, the, the Latin root of to curate, or the word, is curare, which means to care. And so when I found that out, it made me feel really good about myself. <laughs> um, because I feel like that's what I think I'm, I'm a, uh, for better or for worse, I'm a caregiver by nature. And I really enjoy sort of thinking holistically about ex, uh experiences or how people are experiencing things in space and in time and among others. And I think that that's really so much of what curating is about, at least to me, is is really kind of considering um, sort of like a helix of space, time, people, and like what can happen like in that space. Um, 
And within that, there comes a lot of responsibility to make sure that people are safe and other things are safe, human and non-human. Um, and throughout the process, you know, people are being people and humans and non-humans <laughs> are being, you know, <laughs> taken care of and listened to and feel uh, like there's trust. And I feel like any project that I have done, if trust doesn't exist, it just doesn't happen. So, so much of what curators, I think, do, at least I'll speak for myself, is sort of thinking about time, space, humans, non-humans, and how we can all sort of share a moment. And that kind of takes a lot, a lot of consideration um, for many different factors. So... I think people bemoan the fact that everyone's now like a food curator and like a lifestyle. But I'm like, but we all do this work like so much all the time. Of course, like in the visual arts world, it has like its own kind of status. But I think that this is work that we're all doing in our own in our own way. But I just choose to channel that sort of vibe in, in a particular direction, I think. So to care. So what made you decide to even pursue this? Like, did you know, like how, when did you get into curating? Like, tell your origin, your origin story, your origin story. In the beginning. Well, you know, okay, so I went to, I went to Ailey and I thought I was going to be, yeah, I thought I was going to dance professionally. I mean, that, Marcel, you know. I do, or not, do Um, And... Uh, I think I realized that was not my contribution to the field. Flat feet, flat feet. Runs yeah, the it, yeah. Among among many things, thanks, Marcel. <laughs> uh, but no, but yeah, Excuse but there's, there's, but 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 yeah. I I think I realized once I got into to undergrad, I went to Barnard. I realized, well, I love m- movement and I love movers. I love watching movement, but performing. And I think this kind of speaks to. Um, all, of the, all of what you were speaking about in, in the beginning around labor and around equity and around, you know, burnout and value, especially in an ephemeral form that's body-based like dance, you know, the kinds of, and, and, and just the ways in which in our arts ecosystem, the ways in which dance in particular is funded and sort of perceived kind of like as a stepchild to visual art. And so, I mean, that's shifting now. I, I mean, that could be a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> but um, um, what was I saying? The so, stepchild. The stepchild, yes. Yes, I said, can't forget about dance. I just did it. See, I just did it. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I realized, yeah, it's just really hard. It's hard to dance professionally, especially in New York City. It's just like you have you have to need that to like function in the morning, which I do, but... I realized I was actually going to see more shows thinking I was going to dance professionally to do research or whatever. But I was actually finding myself so much more interested in what I was seeing in terms of like um, going to certain venues. I was really intrigued as like why I liked certain venues over others or like why do I keep on seeing the same people sort of performing all the time? And um, why aren't there many people who look like me performing. And so I started getting really interested in those questions. And I mean, I'm a keeper of programs. I love looking at programs and reading how work is like contextualized and who's funding it. And then I I realized that that was a job. I can't remember like how that happened, but it is. It, it it's a job and that's programming um which has now since that that sort of job title has since um I think changed in a lot of places to be called curatorial work. Um, and so I started interning, I actually interned at New York Live Arts, which is just like a block away in programming. And then, um, realized that there's not really the kind, the same kind of professional pipeline for curators who are interested in performance as there is for visual art curators. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, fuck it. I guess I'm going to work in visual art and I've never curated anything in my life, but I need to learn something. So I started working at Mokata, and that's kind of where it all it all began. Yeah, I actually remember um, one time you'd brought home this map of like your influences, like your web of curatorial influences. Could you just tell us a bit, like, okay, so you just 
you've, you've had these experiences and you're kind of creating this sort of professional path for yourself. Who, who like has inspired you in yeah. all parts, nodes, life? Well, that just to give context, I wasn't like journaling on my own. <laughs> Sorry, you, you're not an asshole. <laughs> um, it was for Addies. school. It was for school, which <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in a school. Wesleyan just uh, began a, a curatorial practice and performance program. So I'm going to get him a master's. But so one of our, our assignments at school was actually to do like a brain blast and mind map of all of our sort of curatorial influences. And there were, I mean, it, it, there were there were so many. There were there were like a hundred, well, not hundreds, but many concentric circles of um, like music artists, like Rat King. Everyone knows I really love Wiki, so Wiki was on there. Ghetto Gothic was on there. Um, a collaborator of mine, <clears throat> Jonathan Gonzalez, who's a performer, was on there. Um, Paris is burning. Dipset, like there, you know, it's just like <laughs> everything that's kind of fed me and who I am, like Brooklyn, whatever, like dance hall, yeah, yeah, bachata, like you know, watching competition dance on YouTube. Anyway, so all of those influences, I think, um, as a curator who like started in visual arts has been invested in performance. I think for me. I'm really kind of interested in not really being a purist to the genre or discipline anymore. And I feel like a lot of the artists who I work with or gravitated towards are really not on that page either. So that mind map was really like, oh, shit. Like I, so much of what influences me and my subjectivity, which is everything that curatorial practices is, is made up of so much stuff, like including the fact that I love bagels. Like that actually was on there too. It's like so much of that of my subjectivity and how I kind of live my life day to day. <laughs> Sorry. Because you know it's true. That's what, you it just really poured your heart out on that page. It's <laughs> just like everything. Yeah. No, I did. I did. And um, so, yeah, so I think that that's kind of what my practice is. Like I, I love performance and I love dance, but I think even a lot of the artists I work with who are doing movement-based stuff aren't really calling themselves dancers anymore. Like, they're also making music and film and just, like, write, making podcasts or writing poems. So I kind of, I, 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 I want to, em, not emulate, but I feel like I'm in dialogue with that kind of work. So my influences are kind of everywhere. Bagel exhibition. <laughs> Multidisciplinary, as they call it. Sound, bagel sound art. That would be really dope. Oh, my God. Sponsorship. Nothing nothing could surprise me anymore. So, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Well, on the topic of Mm -hmm. how you got started and how you realized that you needed to be involved in certain worlds to get to others, we are wondering about what your experience was like just trying to launch a career and support yourself, since part of what we are curious into delving into in this episode is just the the problem of value and of compensation, for mm. example, internships and whatnot. So is there anything that you would like to say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I, I feel like I said before, my, my first job out of college was, um, working at Mokata that had a fellowship program at the time, which was really great, um, to be able to be paid and to get some, really necessary professional training in a field I had never worked in. So that was like a real blessing. Um, but then after that, I was kind of like, I don't know, just, bye. you know, it's just like the fellowship's over and then you kind of just have to do your thing. So, you know, I, I've done a grab bag of things. I definitely, I, I was a domestic worker. I was a nanny um, and that supported me quite a bit. And I'm sure Many people who are listening who know me <laughs> know how how mm, prismatic of an experience that was, uh, but it paid. Wow, <laughs> it's so that's so kind of that me. was the euphemism of the, of the millennium. Um, yeah, it was it was a dynamic experience, but it paid because you know for like I was saying before for for curators, I think what's what's an issue is if you're not really associated with an institution, your ideas aren't really going to be funded necessarily unless you're self-producing. 
um, or you're an independent contractor working for an institution for a certain amount of time. So I did I did a mix of both of that. I've you know I've been contracted to produce certain events or exhibitions, um, but that's you know has like a time stamp on it. They're, they happen one day and they're they're done in a few months. Um, so I nannied and um, and that helped barely help me survive thanks to my my roommate you know I have a privilege to have support and that's something that people really need to talk about because you know I think so much of like developing your resume your your like street cred quote-unquote you know we have to be talking about like where's our money coming from like how are we able to not only support ourselves and the work that we're doing but also making sure that everyone involved is also being supported and by supportive of course I mean like emotional but also like literally like are people getting paid so um so aside from like contracted work I would get to do projects, I've often always self-produced and um, been funding my own projects. So, um, and that hasn't been easy at all. And um, it's taught me a lot about how I value myself and my labor in the midst of um, feeling responsible and have and and feeling, yeah, feeling responsible for caring for others and how much money is uh, inextricably linked to to that. So, I'm happy I've learned that lesson early on because I think there's just a lot of really bad habits in the industry that are being troubled and and necessarily so by artists who are advocating for compensation. Um, and even for myself as a curator, advocating just for more money and like knowing my value. So I can't remember if that answered the question, but I hope it did. Yeah, we were talking about what your different gigs were. Oh, yeah. Oh, I also taught ballroom dance, which was amazing. Um, but again, it was like all a tapestry of different things. And they were fifth graders. And they were fifth graders, yeah. <laughs> so I taught dance. Yeah, I taught dance and nannied, and I was a host at a restaurant and just kind of making it work. And and I think, honestly, like realizing early on that there's kind of something going on for curators in terms of um, the ways in which the, the arts funding ecosystem works. And there's kind of a really troubling sort of not fissure but troth I guess in in independent curators being able to to do their work um so I'm always I'm always intrigued about well how did you do that like how much did that cost and I think that that's what's really got me into working around like labor issues I think so I wanted you to talk a bit about um your experiences uh, navigating your own relationship to art history, um, colonialism, Eurocentric bias in like aesthetic hierarchies in the art world. Like, how do you, how have you confronted these sort of like social norms throughout your career? And I mean, I know you, so I'm not going to say I'm assuming that you're trying to challenge them, but in what <laughs> ways do you navigate them? Right, right. Great question. Um, I think the sooner I realized, well, two things. I think one, so much of curatorial, everything, not so much, everything about curatorial practice is asserting your subjectivity. And like the sooner I realized, like troubled the notions of like what reality is, like what subjectivity is and what objectivity, this a sort of objectivity of the white cube, like that like the white cube incubates. Like the sooner I realized that that's just all a fallacy, then I was like, okay. So the work that I'm doing or interested in is actually really, I mean, I knew, I knew this before, but I think I realized that in a deeper way that, um, it's a tremendously political and it is, and it is my, my work as I guess an activist. I don't even really, I, I guess identify, but why not? You know, like I think, I think it is. And I think, um, you know, kind of speaking about Mokata and 
quote unquote, like culturally specific institutions, I also realized, well, like all arts institutions are culturally specific, but they're just not saying that they are because they're normalizing whiteness. So um, the sooner I realized that, I was like, well, wow, the role of a curator is so much about being um, a, a gatekeeper to space and like a gatekeeper to that incubator. Um, and especially in a place like New York City, where space is all the more, you know, it's like rats, like, like near a slice of pizza, you know, it's like that. It's like any time like there's like space, people want it. So like having that kind of power is pretty. Um, yeah, if there's anything like decolonial I do in this curatorial practice, it's being really freaking crystal clear about how space is being allocated and like the politics of that when you say decolonial in reference to curatorial practice what do you mean i'm meaning thinking about the ways in which as like a a, a settler you know um the the ways in which i either am implicit to or counter the ways in which indigenous people on this land have been um, completely denied of their right to existence. (laughs) So I feel like so much of curatorial practice is, of course, about care, but also like what I said about um, negotiations and gatekeeping of space. And I feel like when I think about space as, you know, inherently being political I think about New York and I think about why why New York is called New York and who were the first peoples here and um, what my role is in, as a gatekeeper of space, um, challenging the ways in which the people who are here first have access to that. So like that's, so like what whatever equity means is kind of, it's, it's I think wrestling with those questions and is this kind of an idea that's like a framework decolonial curatorial practice is a framework that people are working with like right now yeah absolutely um absolutely I mean I think I think I think decolonial is just a word that's being used that of course in academia it's it has its place but I think it's been emerging like in, in popular culture way more like decolonize your diet or decolonize your (laughs) like medicine cabinet like those are real things you know it's like it's it but and and it's true it's really kind of thinking around the ways in which like I was speaking about the white cube like this this notion of like normal gets established and like how that literally affects your body and the way you are in space so I think curators are thinking a lot about that specifically because the exhibition and the museum is just a colonial apparatus. I mean, it was it was like a storage facility for stolen shit. And it's like, come see all the shit that we stole. And, you know, and, 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 and that's the tradition. Like, that's the apparatus. That is the technology. That is the technology. <laughs> that's the technology. So to not reckon with that, especially as being like a, you know, a black person, a New Yorker, a queer person, it's just like, then what am I doing? Like, nothing nothing that I'm doing has any teeth. But I think, you know, on top of that, I think alongside of this notion of, like, decolonial fill-in-the-blank, or I'll speak specifically to, like, decolonial curatorial practice, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which that gets talked about that um, kind of places a curator in this really sort of, like, ego-driven space. It's like we are unearthing hidden histories and we're mining the truth and we're recentering and remarginalizing. It's like no. People have been doing X, Y, and Z. People have been centering themselves in their and their communities like till the dawn of time. Like for a curator to sort of I have problems with the curator sort of posturing as if they're doing that sort of, you know, colonial sort of gestures mm-hmm. in discovering um, so I feel like so much of my, if I were to define a cur- decolonial curatorial practice, it's really sort of 
thinking critically about space as a resource and access to that as being first and foremost. And also just like being humble to the fact that, you know, just because, because so much of curatorial work is about like, you know, knowing, knowing what's really good about everything. It's like, no, there's going to be so much that you don't know and you have 5 million blind spots and that's the work is to continue to discover your other blind spots <laughs> and to like how to channel, how to channel resources to like the, the things that you've, um, you want to support. But of course that's fraud. Yeah. I think it's really essential that you, when you talk about identifying what, well, identifying first that every institution is a cultural institution of one kind or another, but also realizing the ways in which we can be necessarily critical of that, which also involves acknowledging the ways in which we're complicit in that. I feel like that your able, your ability to see both sides is really essential because it's very easy, especially from a, a kind of educated liberal perspective to place yourself only in opposition to things that you perceive as oppressive and to not mm -hmm. acknowledge your own place in perpetuating those things and the ways in which you benefit from them. So I think that that I feel like that's a very a very productive way of discussing it and also leads into a next question that we had wanted to ask about responsibility and about taste, which is essentially that being a tastemaker, as you said, comes with huge responsibility and most importantly, the responsibility to comprehend the limitations of sensibility itself and of experience and subjectivity, as you've already pointed out. So... What we're, we're wondering, how have you dealt with the ethical challenges of being a gatekeeper? Like, how have you run in? I mean, that, that must be just a regular part of the job, but how have you had run-ins with that? And also, when we talk about resources that are being shared, what are those resources? Mm -hmm. So I guess I'll, I'll answer the first one, which is, yeah, around, around taste and how I sort of leverage that. I think... I mean, I think I was kind of speaking to it before in the sense that, like, I think my worst fear in this work is, like, thinking I know, like, what's really good or, like, I know what I'm doing. Like, once I once I know that, once I feel that, I'm just, like, going to hang up my proverbial, like, fanny pack and be like, okay, <laughs> it's, like, on to the new, like, life path because <clears throat> I think that's dangerous. And I feel like a curator sort of being like an arbit arbiter of taste and to not be, um, to one, to kind of feel like they already know what's, what's cool. It's like define, it's like define normal, like define cool. Like I, I could like go on for days about how that's even constructed and obviously like aesthetics, not, no, and not obviously actually, aesthetics are deeply racialized and classed and gendered. And that's so much of what curators never talk about. That's and, actually and never. And what the art world never talks about. Yeah, yeah, and just, like, even the notion of high and low art, like, it's like I almost can't even believe we're still saying that. Outsider art. Or outsider art, or it, it's like I, or vernacular. Like, all of these words that are kind of thrown, thrown around um, that I find to be very violent and are directly linked to aesthetics and, and taste and white supremacy it's like to not to not call that for what it is um is a problem and, and is what I think I think curatorial practice um sort of brings to the fore even though it's not something I think that is talked about at least even like the the philosophy of aesthetics is really discussed nearly as much as it as it should be um so I guess I counter that by like really, you know, in the least egotistical way possible, like grounding what I'm doing in my subjectivity as like Ali Rosa Salas, born in Brooklyn, May 7th, 1991, like being very aware of the fact that like what I like, what I see, how I see is deeply political and there's no reason why that's a problem. And it's my work to, I think as a curator, if, I'm, if I care about what I do, if I care about these artists, is to really be uh, rigorous and thoughtful as to how I feel, how and why I feel the way that I do. 
and really being accountable to myself and to others and my communities for the decisions that I make. So I think that that's kind of all wrapped up into taste because then that's also directly linked to resources. So if I realize and I'm liking similar things and directing resources to a specific community because I like what they're doing, quote unquote, and they sort of check off the good taste box in my um, evaluation, then I think it's my responsibility as a curator to recognize those patterns and to and to understand or to begin to question why certain resources are being directed to certain forms, art forms or communities or individuals. Um, and to really, yeah, to just really always continue to reckon with one's decision-making as that is deeply related to your personhood, which of course in the Cartesian dualism footnote, Marcel, it's like the idea of like rationality versus emotion Mm -hmm. are like distinct sort of experiences, which I think curatorial practice for me just troubles all the time because you have to be accountable for for both at the same time. It's the biggest lie. Yeah. Cartesian dualism is yeah. the biggest lie. <laughs> That's, those, those are the next, ha- those are the next uh, not hats, <laughs> but like your shirts. Um, the postscript. Exactly. Um, so I kind of feel like she addressed the question about taste, so maybe we can... Do you think so? Yeah. In terms of being yeah, self-critical, like actually, you actually said yeah. our sentence, the question, but like as a sentence. That was an amazing answer. And I think that um, there's a way in which curators in the past, I think in the art world, have taken on an almost artist status in the sense that a kind of like genius child look at... or And editors in the same way... Um, the status of a genius child who, who kind of goes out and is able to innately perceive quality and not have to explain why. It's just right. like, oh, I found this thing. I knew that it Instinct. was right. I saw this on the street and I and I knew I was the first one. And in a way that that kind of decision making is then not is then not explained and unpacked in a way that would make it necessarily political. Right. So the fact that you're able to acknowledge off the bat why every every single choice that you make and every single formal decision is charged in a way which must be unpacked. I feel like that's a new a new kind of self-awareness in curation itself. Um, I don't know if you I mean when you think about curators who you are there I mean did you come to this this to this kind of career path through seeing other curators and saying oh I want to do that or or just through looking at the art like do you look Mm. to curatorial models as a reason for why you do this and how you would want to act I for me and I think this kind of really clicked for me when one of the kids I was babysitting asked me like what I like, what do you do, like, besides, like, take care of me? And I was like, oh, I do, like, this, I do this thing, and it's called curating. And she was five. She was like, well, what is that? And I, and I was like, okay, so how do I explain what I do in a way that, like, she would understand and feels like not, like, I'm, you know, offending her intelligence and I, and, and I said, I was like, okay, what I do is basically is like make memories or like I, I, what I like to do is my, you know, bring people together in a space and do something that they'll remember. And I was like kind of really moved. I found it very poetic. <laughs> I make memories. Yeah, basically. And how did she respond, the five-year-old? She, she was, was like, like oh. cool. Well, I was like, yeah, I like, I like to <laughs> cool. throw parties. I told her, I was like, I like to throw parties. And, you know, like when you have playdates, like I basically, I like to throw, like organize playdates. But for people who are a little older, but also I would love to work with um, youth more. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, like playdates, I guess. <laughs> That's really <laughs> how I distilled it. Like, and and so for me, I think in terms of like curatorial practices that have influenced me, I think it's just, I think it's like going out. Like I like to go out. I like to like go to parties and I, um, I think nightlife has had a huge impact on me and 
because some of my like most salient memories are like around nightlife and like my relationship to music to music and dance. So it wasn't necessarily like going to an exhibition and being like, and I love this space and I like melted into the walls, you know, <laughs> I was like actually going out and like being around my friends and, you know, the before part where we were like, you know, at someone's house to like the after part and like that whole arc and just like the good memories and the not so good, like the, the ones that you can't really clearly remember, all of that. Was, has been so powerful to me in my life. And just, of course, spending time with Sal. Yeah. yeah, just like, you know, people who are close to me and, and having moments where I can locate a time and a place and a smell and, like, what I was wearing kind of thing. And I think that for me in any, any sort of event that I've organized, if someone's saying that they're having a really great time or they're moved or they liked a piece, like, for me, that's just, like, heaven and earth like combining and just like exploding like that's just what I that's what that's what I like to do it's not so much of like and you're gonna walk into this gallery and just don't breathe or touch anything like I'm not interested in those kind of memories necessarily so I think in terms of curatorial models it's been looking in social more social um settings and kind of like picking up on what people are how people are um behaving and interacting in, in spaces with other humans. Yeah. I guess speaking of what you what you like to do, kind of heaven and earth kind of coming together. <laughs> that sounded so... Does that sound really corny? Well, it just, it's no, like it's, a it little, sounds very, very monumental, <laughs> but per, perhaps... <laughs> but perhaps... That's, that's corny, like, whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> no, so am I. Um, so I... So kind of circling back to the idea of art and labor more specifically, um, and kind of also talk, getting a bit more... Uh, from you about sort of specific exhibitions and things that you have um, that you've curated. I was wondering if you could talk about the work that uh, you've done with uh, Get, Get Artists Paid. If you could just talk a bit about what your programming was like with them, what this what this organization does, and kind of the initiatives that are kind of moving towards um, shifting the conversation at least or bringing attention to the degree of exploitation that continues to happen for arts workers right now. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so we did an event. We, we collaborated with Get Artists Paid at, at Knockdown Center in April, I think. And we did it like a day long. We had an, um, an artist market. Uh, we had like a lot of um, artists selling goods selling wares and, and artwork, and um, we had a series of different workshops and panel discussions, um, sort of thinking around, like, labor practices and skill building, and um, and then, of course, a mixer, because we, you know, we want there to be, like, many ways for people to engage, because I feel like once we're speaking about labor and money in a way that's, like, contextualized, well, all contexts are social, but I mean like a fun social atmosphere because, you know, we live in such a capitalist society, but talking about money is like, is like talking about like your sex life. It's like, it could, it can, it's so, ta it could be really taboo in some contexts. So for us, it was really important to sort of create an environment where we were really speaking transparently about these issues in a way that was like engaging and fun and necessary and are also urgent at the same time. So it was really great. I mean, I think people had a really great experience. We collaborated. Discwoman did a panel uh, discussion targeted to DJs, and we had um, Get Arts Paid facilitated a panel with a bunch of um, really incredible women art workers um, talking about, you know, the relationships between um, their own practices and working with institutions and sort of like institutional relationships um, and student thinking about student loan debt and sort of how to like manage that and eating healthy on a budget. And so it was like really sort of taking like a multi sort of faceted approach to thinking around like what it means to sustain oneself. It's like it, yeah, like buying supplies or like having money to like rent studio space is a thing, but it's also like being able to eat. 
like having the physical energy. So to do what you have to do. So we're trying to take a holistic approach. Um, Could you talk about what Get Artists Paid, like who they are, like what they do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So Get Artists Paid actually um, is a a really huge... um, I guess a consortium or a, co- a collective of um, individuals from around the world. It actually is, is a Facebook group um, that I'm a part of and and many, many, many people are part of um, who are working in design and art, be it visual or performing um, and other creative disciplines. And it's really like a kind of a resource center where people ask, well, I just got, you know, someone will like screenshot an email and be like, someone's asking me to photograph X, Y, and Z for this long. And they're not paying me this much, or they haven't talked. Like, so basically it's like a huge hive mind for, um, other creative workers to sort of get together and support one another and advocating for um, themselves. So, yeah, it's a definitely it's a it's a resource center. It's uh, it's a way to get work. People post um, job postings, which is really great. And of course, you know that's that's then become a community. And so we decided to partner with them to do like an IRL. Um, well, the internet's an IRL place, but you know, you know, with other humans, it's sharing this sharing <laughs> the space in the same in the same time. So. It was really great. I think I think we did a feedback form for this event, which I will always do for every other event. I couldn't believe I hadn't ever done one before, but it, I think speaking, you know, as a curator and just wanting to get better at what you do and like, you know, claiming that you care about people, but you don't care really about what they have to say <laughs> beyond the good things, you know, it's just like so the feedback form was like really important and I think something that um was someone mentioned was the fact that the artist market and the workshops were happening at the same time and the fact that like artists it kind of like exemplified in this really sort of bizarre way the ways in which artists were still sort of having to work for survival like they weren't able like some of them weren't able to access the workshops so you know that was a really huge and really incredible feedback to receive because it kind of again it's like I think what I was saying before is like the minute you think you know what you're doing another blind spot will be like revealed to you and I was like wow like that's it's such an incredible lesson um and yeah just and just always being you know rigorous and um open to like taking your pride putting it aside and really listening to like how people are experiencing what you're doing and um, using it as an opportunity to grow instead of an opportunity to sort of crawl into yourself and, and never do something again. Yeah. That's a, that's a funny counterpoint to the idea of, of like a review a show <laughs> or an event, which is so finite. You know, right. It's like, and that, and, and that was that. And, and like so polished yeah, and exactly. like political document with like oh i can't piss off like this now person we're going on the record person. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right like i i need a more that's a cool idea. how did you circulate the f- the feedback thing like how did you get it well get artist pay was great they they posted it on social media and we sent it to everyone um like the to vendors and um to people who had participated so yeah it we got and we and we got it you know it's surprising when when you really want to hear what people are saying then they will respond. <laughs> Just need a louder megaphone next time. I know. That was also feedback that I got. <laughs> They're like, we couldn't understand the girl with the megaphone, but it looked cute. So whatever. You, you did. You did look That's really true. cute with the megaphone. Thanks, sis. You're welcome. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it's really awesome to hear uh, about your path, your origin story, and your continue as it as it continues on your work as a curator into the future. I was wondering if you, to just close up, if you could um, perhaps give some advice for people who may want to um, do this kind of work. Um, yeah, what are some tips, anything you would have told 17-year-old, 18-year-old you? I mean, you, you wanted to be a dancer at that time, but like, <laughs> you will never dance. <laughs> You will never <laughs> no, but yeah. What what are your, some of your tips? 
By tips, I think, what are some tips? Um, this is going to sound so corny, but whatever, I'm corny. I think, I think honestly, and this is the hardest thing, and this is why it's corny, but it really is to just be nice. Like, don't be a pushover, but be just like a nice person, I think. As a, as a curator, for me, and, like, I think everyone will define their work differently, but everything that I do is about the relationships I have with people, and that's just, uh, and that's, I mean, of course, that's the way the world works, and then I think specifically, like, in, in a, like, a contemporary art context, similar to politics, because it's political, what we do, but how resources are shared and allocated is is due to a web of relationships between people and people, including institutions, because inst- art institutions are bodies that contain many people in them. And the relationships that individuals have with one another is directly linked to what we're seeing and how we're seeing it. So I feel like for me, the reason why I say to to be nice, maybe it's not to be nice, but it's really just to maybe I think be nice, be, be accountable, be accountable, I think. But, but niceness is also important to me because I think kindness is a virtue. And I think that that's directly linked to like meeting people where they're at and like valuing people valuing people not only like on a you know effective level but also on like a financial level and I think because for me so much of my work is around the relationships that I have like personal professional political they're all one and the same so that's also a fallacy just like objectivity it's like we make investments societies make investments in people and things because they value them so I think, you know, for me, it's like really as it in the work that I do, being nice, being held accountable, I think the umbrella to that is just like having integrity. Thanks so much, Allie. Oh, thank you, sissy. This is so fun. Oh, you're the best. So um, thanks to everyone who's listening right now, all you listeners that are still riding with us. For yeah, our, true. Thank you for my ride or dance. <laughs> for all our ruminations. Um, this, this was really fun, Allie. Thank you so much. This was fun. Oh, my God. Thanks to Sienna, our producer. Thanks, Sienna. And Hassan, so cool. sound engineer at Red Thanks, Bull Hassan. Arts New York, whose Hassan is the best. And Red Bull. Shout out to Red Bull for um, letting us hang out here. And, and Top Rank. And, and, and Top Rank. Oh, and Alice. Shout out to Alice. Alice. We wish she was here right now. <laughs> shout out to Alice. You can find Top Rank Magazine on across social media platforms. Indeed. Um, Instagram at Top Rank Magazine. Also, we're on Twitter at Top Rank Magazine. You can find the podcast itself on SoundCloud and, of course, on iTunes. But, um, yeah, thanks for listening. And until next time, bye. 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 <laughs> Send me in your heart attack.